uh, creative design and direction here at the church with us. And you will notice that the flowers are gone. If you've been with us over the last like five or six months, we've had these beautiful flowers that you all helped create. Those are now in the lobby space. And so we're gonna leave those in the lobby for just a little bit because they're gorgeous in there. And then at some point we're gonna invite you if you would like to take some of those home with you and you can have them in your life. But um, now these are here. And some of you know what these are and how these came to be, but I'm gonna ask if you would just share with the congregation a little bit about how we got to this point, where the fabric came from, what we're looking at on the fabric, and uh, how these ended up above everyone's heads. So a couple of months ago, we asked for you to bring in any unwanted fabric scraps, and you did. You brought in so much. We have extra for future projects, so thank you for that. But then Holly, Earl, and I cut them into squares. Holly doing most of that work, so when she gets back from her trip, tell her thank you. Um, and then you all participated, most of you, in the prayer practice of writing down your prayers or drawing them uh, for about the last month. Yeah. Uh, so this is all your work. I just had the honor of gathering it and stitching it together. And then how many are we looking at here? 208 prayers. That's it's a lot of prayers. About how many are above us. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Corey. Thank you, all of you, for everything you did to, okay, for everything uh, you decided to share. One of the things we did as a staff is we would gather these often on Tuesdays when we meet together and we would pray for them. And uh, Corey had mentioned to you, but the trust that you all have to share these with your church and with us is uh, overwhelming. So as we move into a time of prayer together, I'm gonna ask if you would just engage with what's above you. You may see your own prayer up here. I can see some of mine right above Cindy Ekstrain here. Uh, you might see a, somebody you know, or just a name that's unfamiliar. Um, so I'm gonna ask as we move into just a, a minute or so of prayer in silence, uh, I'm gonna invite you to look upward. Find someone in your community and hold their prayer as you go through this week. Uh, know that we are holding these prayers with you. So let's enter into a time together where we're quieting ourselves, we're directing our energies outward toward God and toward one another's place of need or grief or joy or hope. Um, so would you pray with me in this silence? God, we pray today with open eyes. Not with heads bowed, but with uh, our chins up extended toward the roof, the sky, the heavens, and through the prayers of our neighbors and friends. Receive now these prayers we have uttered and drawn, written over this last month. Where there is pain here, bring comfort. Where there is joy here, we give thanks. Where there is ambivalence and doubt, we ask for peace. For all the ways we can't say these prayers, but we can only imagine them, we can draw them, but words don't quite do the trick. Receive our utterances beyond language. Thank you for this congregation and the witness of their struggle in this life as we point our hearts towards you. Hear our prayers, amen.
This is Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 12. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your heart Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you a land with fine large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of goods that you did not fill, hewn sisters that you, cisterns that you did not hew, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you have eaten your fill, take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Alex. Friends, I'm really excited this morning because we are beginning a new uh, teaching and preaching focus for the next uh, couple of months through until Advent starts, which is in December. And last week, we were able to hear some testimonies from folks in our congregation, and those tied in with this new beginning. But let me tell you why we are where we are, and then we're going to jump in with our passage today. Uh, So I'm in the middle of having my ordination recognized by our American Baptist region. If you don't know what that means, you don't need to worry about what that means. Just know that the board knows what that means, and I understand it. But part of what happens there, I was ordained uh, a while back at a church I served at in Dallas, Texas, at Wilshire Baptist Church by a community there and a council there. And so now that I'm here, I'm able to have a conversation with our regional leadership about how to have that ordination recognized. And one of the things they're going to let me do, because they are so kind to let me do this, is I get to write like 20 pages of ordination essays based on these kind of big topics and ideas of faith. And to that, I say to them, thank you for a 20-page paper. No, they said in there, uh, in the instructions, hey, if you prepared like a systematic theology 101 uh, final paper, I bet you could just repurpose that. Do you think I have a systematic theology 101 final paper laying around? The answer is no. So what I thought I would do is I would just preach like 20 sermons about those ordination topics and turn the audio in to the region and then see if, no, Uh, I am actually doing this writing and I'm going to share that writing with you as well. We're exploring these topics and I'm inviting you to explore them with me. Often you've got leaders who stand up here and we've gone through this set of training. We've wrestled through these topics 
uh, and they're not just ideas, right? These are living, breathing, in our bones reality. And the practice of articulating those convictions is important. And for you to watch how your leadership struggles with forms, reforms, deforms, beliefs, convictions and faith, that's important as well. So you've got these sermons that you're gonna receive and participate in. You also have Thursday noon Bible study if you wanna come to that anytime in our chapel where we wrestle with these texts and these ideas together. Uh, you also have at some point, I'll have some writing for you that I'll share, the essays I'm writing. And then we started a little audio feed podcast called One Block Talks. And so I'm sort of using that as well to work these ideas out. So there's a lot of pieces coming in to create this systematic, which is a word that I bristle with already. So today, we're going to talk about God. And it's a good first place to talk. The first question they ask is, what is your personal story of faith? Which is why last week we looked at our own witness and testimonies. And then the next question is uh, the question of God. Who is God? What is God's character? I could do that. I mean, 20 pages is not enough for that one topic but we're gonna give it a go for the next 40 minutes or so. And here's the structure of today. We're gonna to take you through three phases. This is three different ways to focus in on this question that has been helpful for me. And you all will have your own experience with how you articulate, how you understand, how you live within or abide with God. And that word, even God, we'll talk a little bit about as we start. So first we'll start with the apophatic tradition. Uh, that'll make sense in a minute. Then we're gonna move to what is essentially God's nature, which is dialogical or relational. It's kind of call and response. And then we're gonna finish with what is overwhelming about the presence of God in our lives. So three things, apophatic, dialogical, overwhelming. Let's get started with our first question. You heard this reading today from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter six. And Deuteronomy is credited as being written by Moses, Moshe, who uh, is featured mostly in the book of Exodus. Uh, Moses is the leader of the Israelites at the time when they are in Egypt and they are being freed from Egypt. But at the beginning of that story in Exodus chapter three, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, so now you're gonna sort of, if you don't already know that Exodus is one of my favorite books of the Bible, then it's probably your first Sunday here uh, because we talk about it all the time. But in Exodus three, Moses is in the wilderness, the Bamidbar, in the desert. And in that space, there is this bush that is burning on this mountain at the edge of the wilderness. And uh, this bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And this bush catches Moses' eyes. And he looks and says, the text says, notices, he turns to see what's happening. And God notices that Moses notices. And they begin to have a conversation with one another. This voice from the fire and this shepherd refugee in the wilderness. And over time, this voice turns out to be the God of Moses' ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this Moses has a call, has a task, or this God has a task for Moses. That task is to go back to Egypt and to free God's people. But Moses, ever the uh, pragmatist, says, like, who am I supposed to say sent me? We show up here at this mountaintop, but we've been in slavery for a long, long time. They may not know who you are and ask the question, what is your name? So let's start there. What is God's name? Uh, how many people think it's God? Let's just raise our hands, right? 
we know that God, G-O-D, is not a proper name, but like a designation of a genre of meaning. So I'm gonna ask you the question and I want you to think with me about some of the names that you might use for the divine, for the ground of being, for the liberator, sustainer, what language is intimate to you? So I'll show you a few that I thought of here. Let's go to the next slide. So we have the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the rendering in English of the word under that, which we typically say was Yahweh. Under that is the Hebrew script written in red for Yahweh, yod Hey vav Hey, And then under that is the name Adonai, which means my Lord, sort of a common designation. Often when you hear me read Hebrew, like the Shema that Alex read today, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Adonai is the stand-in for Yahweh when reading. It's sort of a way to be respectful of God's divine name. Hashem is another word we might use, which means the name. Echyeh, asher echyeh, I am who I am. Elohim, the first time that God's name shows up in the text. Genesis 1.1, Bereshit bara Elohim. El, the super common sort of ancient Semitic Mesopotamian rendering for God in the abstract, or then just simply God. Now, I'm leaning heavily into Hebrew and into English, but those are not the only ways that we talk about God. So let me just ask the question to you all. What are some names you would use for God? Raise your hand if you have one that you'd be willing to share. Phyllis? Jehovah? He who causes to be. Yeah. Someone else. Say it again. Father. Pater Hamon, our father, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Rose? Oh, she stole it. All right. Well, we can both use father. It's okay. Yeah, Zach? We call God Dios our house. Dios? And where is that coming from? Spanish, but it's from Zeus. Spanish, but it's from Zeus. Like Greek Zeus? Ah, so even the names we use might in fact be borrowed and repurposed and, and turned into sacred language. Somebody else want to offer? Messiah. Messiah, ooh, Messiah or Mashiach, the anointed one. And so even in that language is, I'm guessing, kind of hearkening toward Christ as well. Messiah and Christ being uh, Greek and Hebrew renderings of the designation for Jesus. Messiah. Anybody else want to offer? I knew you were going to say that. So Cynthia, I was thinking about this. Cynthia is on our staff. And we each, part of the reason I want to ask this question is the, the God that we carry around, the language we use for God, it says something about the relationship we understand that God having with us. And the reason I knew you would say Abba is because if you get to know Cynthia, there is like a tenderness and an intimacy and vulnerability with your self-understanding and your understanding of God in relationship to you. Abba is one of these really guttural, like, like Papa or Daddy or sort of the cry of a child with a parent. And it's one of the words that, that Jesus uses. We cry, Abba, Father. Yeah. So all of this, like pile it all into the room. All of these are approximations. 
And part of what I want to do as we start is that I want to name the limits of our ability to name God. The reason that I have this many and the reason that I could have continued to ask you, like you offered Dios in Spanish, but we've got folks who speak other languages in this congregation and you have your own set of words for the divine. And they're not just renderings of our English God or of the Hebrew rendering of Yahweh. It again speaks to an interactive experience with the divine. But all of those are approximations. None of those are exact. And so as we come to talk about God, we always take a posture or a step back in humility to say, even as we reach language and stretch it to try and encapsulate the meaning of who God is and what God is to us, uh, we always will fall short. And maybe that's part of the point. So to speak God, one of the first things we have to be comfortable with doing is learning how to speak what is not God or even to name our own definitions of God as inadequate, even as though they are reaching. So let's start with a, uh, a little experiment from Art 101. Anybody an art student in here, a former art student or a lover of art? I see Corey over here and Daria. I see some hands of people that are hesitant to raise it because you think I'm going to ask you to do something today. I'm not. But uh, we have this experiment, this little practice that we do in early art classes that I want to invite you to at least imagine with me. And that's how to see well and how to draw what's actually there. So what are we looking at here? A chair? How do you know? Like what about this says chair to you? Legs? Someone else. Because like people have legs, so it's not a person, it's a chair. What else? Because it's stationary and static. It's not like the legs are running, right? Anything else make this a chair? The seat, yeah, and the, the back too, right? It's funny how all the words for chair are also body parts. I'm not sure what that's all about. This is not a chair, right? This is a drawing of a chair, and it's a bad drawing of a chair at that. I sat down, took my pencil, and sketched this out, pulling the idea of a chair from my mind. And I know, yes, that a chair has four legs. It can do with three, it might be a stool, but it's got a seat. And if you're lucky, it has a back. And you can kind of place those things in space. It's a two-dimensional plane, you sort of turn them into a perspective and you have this idea of a chair. But it's not a chair. It's my mind's projection of a chair. And it's crudely drawn. So what they show us in art class is if you want to draw a chair as it actually is, I'm gonna borrow this stool. Dave, I'm gonna borrow this stool. Just, if, if it's still up here when we're done, then you just can pick it up. I'll try to remember to put it back. Uh, so if you wanna draw this stool, you still got the same thing. You got four legs, you've got all these cross beams, and you've got this seat. And if I asked you to just grab a pencil and draw it on your sermon notes, you could rough it out. But in art class, we wanna learn how to draw well and how to capture things uh, in like a deeper sense of their meaning. And so the way you draw the stool is you learn to draw what is not the stool. And I know I sound a little bit like Yoda right now, but trust me, it works. Don't draw the seat. Don't draw the legs. If you look from wherever you are, this stool has a bunch of intersecting planes and negative spaces. I'm going to back up so that y'all don't get nervous here. Draw those. 
Draw where each positive part of this form intersects the negative shape around it. Pay less attention to the stool or the chair and draw what is not the chair. Part of the reason this is such an effective practice for early art students is we assume we know what a thing is and then we assume that we can render it into the world. So I'm gonna show you the chair I drew that was like a negative space exercise. I didn't draw the chair at all. I drew everything that wasn't a chair. And you can see this little triangle, this kind of strange rectangular shape up here. Can you see the difference in the likeness of these two drawings? Part of what I'm inviting you into today as we explore God is to try to loosen up your mind to what we think we already know. When God reveals God's self to Moses, that revelation is also an act of concealing. By the way, this entire sermon today is gonna be just like one long paradox and tension, so feel that inside of you. Uh, that is the point. God is not resolvable, but resolves in the interaction. So this is the divine name for God as revealed in Exodus 3. We know it as the Tetragrammaton, the four big characters, Yod, He, Vav, He. And we don't know how to say it. When it is given to Moses and then given to us through the tradition that Moses and then the Israelites record in Scripture, if it had a vocalization, we lost it. Partly because we don't know what the vowels are, but also because the name itself has this like ethereal quality to it. We think that the divine name is a sort of referencing of the verb to be in Hebrew. But we're not quite sure. And when we say it, we say Yahweh because yod heh vav heh uh, it sort of works out to sound like Yahweh. Jehovah, Phyllis, who you mentioned, is sort of an attempt to vocalize the divine name without exactly breaching its sacred mystery. So Jehovah is a way to kind of get around how we would say this name. But this isn't the only thing that the voice tells Moses about a self-designation. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God, God of your ancestors, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. If you need to tell the Israelites and the Egyptians who sent you, just tell them that I am sent you. I don't know if that's gonna work. But this is what Moses is given. I am who I am. What does it mean that the revelation of God's character, the like big one in the scriptures, you lean in close, you put your ear against the wall of the universe to listen to what God's name sounds like, and you were given what is essentially a riddle. You were given a disclosure that also conceals. It makes me curious, but it also puts me a little bit off balance. Even in the Revelation is the move toward humility. Ludwig Wittgenstein, 
pretty important philosopher, wrote one big philosophical work. And this is the last sentence in that philosophy. It's an exploration of language and the limits of language, which is good fodder for our conversation today. And says at the very end of all of this explanation and stuff I can't understand when I've read it 20 times, says what we cannot speak about we must pass over in silence. What does it mean to be the people of God? Charged with, called to, articulate God's glory and goodness and love and grace and commandments and justice into the world while also being called into a reverence that silences all speech because all speech is an approximation and not the true God. A little bit later in the book of Exodus, Moses is given instructions on how the Israelites are to build the tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle is gonna be the Ark of the Covenant. You probably know the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones, which is where most of us learn about what this thing is and does. I'm not gonna talk about that much today, but this is my rendering of the Ark of the Covenant. You'll notice at the top of the Ark, uh, the main part I want you to focus on are these two cherubims, these, these angels. And in the middle of those is what? What exists between the wings of these two creatures? Does anyone remember? Nothing, right? Nothing is there. I didn't just forget to draw it. There's nothing there. Deeply intentional. In the temple, first temple, second temple in Israel, Jerusalem, top of the Temple Mount, there's all of these sacred spaces and you get to the middle sacred space and what's it called? The Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies, not everybody can go into, just the high priest and just once a year. And what is in the Holy of Holies? Well, we would say it's the Shekinah or the presence of God, but it's honestly an empty cavity filled with smoke. The space where we seek to encounter God is envisioned as a space with nothing present. God is absent even at the site of the middle of the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the tabernacle. These figures, these creatures are guarding our tendency to idolize and concretize the living, active, and dynamic God. And they do it, and we do it over and over again. The Israelites make the golden calf, and that's sort of their version of Yahweh. Look, we made it. It's right there. It's in the middle of the camp. But God is mysterious, drawing and wooing. The reading we heard today is from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 pushes us even more into this direction. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord alone. Echad, the Lord is one, the Lord is unified, the Lord is the only God. What you have in the Shema is both like an affirmation or an acclamation of who God is, and also a statement of iconoclasm as to everything and everyone else who is not God. Egypt had Ra. Ra was their God, the sun God. If they had an Ark of the Covenant and they had two angels sitting there in the middle, then right between those angels would be a big statue of Ra. Babylon had Marduk. In Babylon, if you had a temple to Marduk, you had lots of statues of Marduk in that space. This is the way that it worked. 
the revelation of Yahweh, Israel's God, explodes into history in the midst of all of these kind of jugglings and strugglings with gods, plural. The idea of local deities, often capricious, deeply concerned with whether or not the humans are annoying them at work in weather and in crops and in fertility, and deeply envisioned and idolized and concretized and frozen. And this God is different. It'll take Israel some time to realize that this God is the only God, because at first it's that this God is the best God or the strongest God. I've met people, you have too, who claim the title of like atheist, of someone who does not have a belief in God. A being like the opposite of or not, and then theism, theos for God in Greek. Or maybe agnostic, which is the language of if there is a God, that God is unknowable. Okay. And then you talk to folks like this, and maybe you have been a person, maybe you are this person, and you say to me, well, listen, I just couldn't believe in a God who does X. And I'm listening and I'm thinking, I don't believe in that God either. And then they say, okay, well, I also couldn't imagine that God could do Y. I think, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like the God that I believe in. And you keep going and going, and after a while you think to yourself, like, wait, maybe I'm an, maybe I'm an atheist too. And I actually want to push us in this direction. We are, in fact, atheistic to many versions of God. There are all kinds of gods that we don't believe in. God is vindictive and capricious. God as shallow and demanding. God as tribal, is prejudiced. God is lacking. God is weak. I don't, none of these gods are gods that I believe in. There is at the core of our faith, a million different ways to say what is not God. This is the other language of revelation. I am who I am, ehye, asher, ehye. Sounds like breathing. It again is a disclosing and an evasion. So let's offer in this moment as we shift our silence to God, recognizing that even the divine name itself is like our own breathing. And so as it feels strange, it also feels intimate. Ehye, asher, ehye. God is not just understood in what God is not. At some point, the negative theology, the apophatic tradition of saying a thing by not saying a thing, revealing a thing by disclosing a thing, gives way to a positive encounter. In Exodus 3, 
Moses turns and sees the burning bush. God notices that Moses turns and God says, Moshe, Moshe, Moses, Moses. And Moses' response is the response of a universe in dialogue with its creator. Hineni, behold me. It is this presentation, it is this response to the call. And we begin to understand at a deeper level what it means to know God, which is not to simply know God as this abstract monotheistic principle, but to know God as the voice who calls us. And the way we know that we've been called is because we are formulating always a response to that call. With your life, you are offering this kind of hineni to creation and back to God. Each time, God presents a call to one of God's people. Samuel, Samuel, hineni. Elijah, Elijah, hineni. And it happens too with us, right? Cindy, Cindy. Ted, Ted. God is understood as the voice, as language which makes creation. In the beginning, God created with speech. And John 1 says, in the beginning was the logos, or the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Speech pours forth from the heart of the universe, and the reason you know that is because you are responding to it. You are being addressed, and your response in faith is the evidence that you are being called by God. This call and response, this dialogical nature to the universe is the way that Israel understands their relationship to God as the voice. Shema Yisrael, hear, listen, O Israel, to the voice calling. All the other religions at the time had a very sight-driven understanding of God. There's God right there. There's the statue. Shema Yisrael. God calls and we respond. But that's not exactly a relationship, right? That is like a totalitarian understanding of relationality. Just part of why in starting this, I asked you to share with me your language for God, because I don't want this simply to be me speaking, but us having a conversation and a dialogue, because over time, in an understanding of who God is, it's not simply God speaking and us responding. There are other times where it's us speaking and God responding. Just look above your heads. It shifts. So Moses is addressed but then somehow finds the language to address God. Abraham does the same thing. God's people are those who speak and God responds. This is what Jesus shows us about Abba, Father. And the questions and the address that humanity and creation offers back to its creator are full of all of the intensity of what it means to be alive in this world. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus as the one who calls, waiting for the response of the God who is listening. 
We do this every time we pray. Every time we offer up our utterances, that there is a God who is listening. The shock of the revealed God in scripture and in our own lives is that we are not in fact alone, but are being addressed by the very heart of creation and invited to speak back, to answer and to question. This is what it means to be in dialogue. And so now we've said what God is not and offered our silences into the space where our language does not quite reach the truth in its fullness. And then being invited into a conversation or a dialogue with the mystery of the universe. Out of our silence comes speech. We inhale and then we speak. But the next move is to one of being overwhelmed by the true God. There is this line from one of my very favorite books by the poet Christian Wyman. The book is My Bright Abyss. We've shared it with you at Lent in various years. But he asks this question in one of his essays, how do we remember God? How does one remember God? He says, how does one remember God, reach for God, realize God in the midst of one's own life if one is constantly being overwhelmed by that life? There's this problem of proximity with God. Some of you have a sense that God is intimately close at all times. And this is an abiding presence that is a deep comfort to you. And y'all are some of my favorite people to hang out with. But a lot of us, in fact, I would say most of us, experience God as the absence of God. With every prayer uttered, greeted by silence and a hope that God is listening, but not necessarily an assurance that God is listening. And in that space of doubt can arise the belief that God is very, very, very far away. And that is why it is so hard to understand this God. But there is another way to understand this incomprehensibility of the divine, which is that God may not be very far away, but might be so very, very close Thomas Merton says that trying to see and understand God is trying to, like trying to look at your own eyeballs. This overwhelming nearness. Over time, Christians will begin to understand this as God inhabiting our very being. And then it starts to become like the air that we breathe, like a fish in water. There's this little clip, Christian Wyman was uh, interviewed by Krista Tippett on the On Being podcast. And he talks a little bit about this overwhelming nearness of God. And we start to get an approximate understanding of who God is. I wanna let you listen to it, it's about two minutes long, and then we'll finish out together. Uh, Jason, can we cue it up? So it, it's very interesting that um, your return to faith was very much connected to finding love and I'm yeah, it was. <laughs> and you know it I'm, was. I'm resisting saying falling in love because we do throw it around so much and it's something you fall in and to and fall out of yeah. but, but what you have really really dug into you know love as something that puts us in touch with transcendence and with mystery you were just really aware of that and articulate about it well I think um uh, I mean, it was a revelatory time for me because I certainly would never have said those things in the past. I had to have the experience to be able to write about it. In fact, I would have 
uh, actively denigrated the notion, probably. The notion of? Uh, oh, the notion that uh, that love could open up the world for you in that way. You know, there's a, there's a, we just published a poem in the magazine by a poet named Spencer Reese, who's uh, become an Anglican priest, as it happens, and he's talking about a, the whole poem is an elegy for someone he knew and uh, is trying to get at the truth of his life. And he says, all I know is that the more he loved me, the more I loved the world. Mm. And I think in any genuine love, and it's not simply romantic love. Right, it's other love, loves. Yeah. Yes, it's our love for yeah. our children. Yeah, it's friendships. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think there's some kind of uh, excess energy. We tend to think of love as closing out the world and we can only see the face of the beloved and and you know that everything else goes quiet or goes numb and but actually what i experienced was that and i've experienced it again with my children is that the love demanded to be something else it demanded to be expressed beyond the expression of the participants you know it kept demanding more yeah and um that excess energy i think is uh god the more he loved me the more I loved this world. That's a great line. Wyman said there at the end that this excess energy, that love and affection truly expressed is found in the overflow. That real love does not close down reality or block out the participants, but opens them to the rest of the world in generosity, in this pouring out, this pouring forth, this excess energy is God. This is what Wyman says. And he's not off base. Wyman is himself a Christian born out of deep struggle and honesty, speaking with the voice of a poet. And he sounds like the first letter in John. 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God. The space between the angels is empty. The temple is full of smoke. The name of God is itself unpronounceable. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in of and his love is perfected in us. And we love because he first loved us. It turns out that that dialogical nature to the universe is love spoken and heard and love responded to in kind. This is the flow all the time. This is what Christ reveals. This is what we step into. I'm gonna finish with one last story and then we're gonna sing a song. Y'all know this uh, bass riff right here? You know it, right, Rick? Uh, Do-do, do-do. Do-do, do-do, do-dum, 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 do-dum. Do you know who wrote this? Somebody. Coltrane, because you know jazz, my man. John Coltrane. This is his album, A Love Supreme. It's a four-movement album, four-movement piece of music. And in the beginning of A Love Supreme, in the album notes, he has a poem he wrote. And in that poem, he's articulating what has happened to him in his life of struggle and of addiction and of brokenness and of turning and of being responded to, of encountering love as the grounding force in the universe and naming that love as God and giving that love back in an offering. That's what the album of Love Supreme is. It is gorgeous in its honesty. 
In the lines, in the liner notes, there is a couple of verses. Coltrane says, God breathes through us so completely and so gently. We hardly feel it, but it is our everything. And then here's what Coltrane does in the song. And here's what you're doing in your life when it's well lived with awareness and intentionality. He plays da-dum, 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 da-dum. And Coltrane doesn't typically sing in his music. He's a saxophone player. But you can hear his voice. A love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme. He just keeps saying it over and over again. Breathing the everything that God is. And then he modulates a key, and then another key, and then another key. And he and his group, they play this riff, da-dum, 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 in every key that they can voice. So that there is no space and no place and no sound where the love of God is not present to strip away all that we think we know and dive deep into the mystery is to arrive at an all-encompassing love which we name as God and which we follow and respond to with saxophone and with poetry and with lives well lived. So at the start of this systematic theology is a posture of the heart which is waiting and ready to speak a response of here I am. Lives oriented toward and pulling toward the very heart of the universe. Ehye, asher, ehye. Would you bow your heads? And God, in our breathing, in our silence, in the chaos and storms that are inside of our hearts that we are trying to still, would you speak your name in language that we can hear? Friends, I'm going to ask as you sit in this prayer posture as we prepare to sing that you would notice your breathing and your neighbor's breathing. That you would see in that breath the presence of God, the language of God inside of you, moving in and out. You have in fact been found today. And not found wanting, but found and called beloved. And may you be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.